All right, so we're in the middle of a series on where we're going through the progression of our church uh, over the last 10 years, and um, it's not necessarily to just say, let's celebrate, hey, we made it, or hey, look at us, Um, but it really is just recounting the faithfulness of God as we have taken steps of obedience, and as we're going through the progression, we're also just talking about, man, these are the things, when we originally started as a church, um, the conversations that we were having, the things that we were learning, uh, and how they were transformative in Scripture, how they've been transformative um, for our organization as a whole, and transformative for us as individuals. And let me say that a little bit differently that I think maybe we'll connect. Um, When we first started as a, not even as a church, as a group of people trying to figure out what this would even look like, the central question that we kept coming back to was simply this. It was, if we had full knowledge of the Bible and full knowledge of culture and no knowledge of church or how the church had operated or church history, and it wasn't to be anti-traditional or anti-history because there's a lot of wonderful and really important things that we can learn from that, but, but we've kind of maybe all thought this, which is, If all we had was the teachings of Jesus and what the Bible says, and we dropped in right now, church started, what would it look like? Like, what would be different about it? What would be a part of it? What were the core and the essential things that existed? And as we would have conversations and discussions around that, there was one thing that really kept, it really kept kind of circling back and if you've ever done any kind of like a, you know, organizational analysis or strategic planning, you know a lot of times how you frame questions is really important. Um, and I, I heard a guy say a question that was similar to it this way. Uh, he said, what is one thing about your company, one thing about your organization, one thing about your industry, what is one thing that, what's one problem that if you could solve would change everything? What's one thing that if you could figure out that thing, that thing would change everything? And as we as a church or as we as a small group of people, we're just reading the book of Acts, reading the Gospels, reading Jesus' life and the the story of what happened to the church when he died and, and rose. What would we have? And the thing that was so riveting about Jesus, the thing that was honestly incredibly difficult for the church or for us to really capture and to grasp, the thing that that just seemed like if we could figure this thing out, this thing would change everything. It was simply this, that when Jesus walked the planet, people who were nothing like him were magnetized to him. People who were nothing in terms of his, their, their level of spirituality, their, their level of religious fervor, like people who were nothing like Jesus were drawn to Jesus, loved Jesus, and the crazy part was Jesus was drawn to and he loved them. And the problem is, is oftentimes when it comes to Jesus, we kind of have this, I kind of have an existing framework for one of my, you know, kind of hidden assumptions behind church and behind Christianity is that honestly, one of the biggest hindrances that people who are not engaged in faith have with faith, and that's you if you are skeptical, that's you if you've walked away, that's you if you've never been a part of, you know, a really, you know, a place like this, is that places like this churches somehow repel people from Jesus. But the church is supposed to be the body. It's supposed to be the best representation that we have on the planet. When we gather together, it should be the most that we look like Jesus. But it seems like it creates the opposite effect. And I remember thinking, if we can ever figure that out, if we can ever figure that out, that will change everything. Because people who were nothing like him loved him. You know what was actually interesting about that? Nobody was actually like Jesus. Like, it's one of those things where <clears throat> when we talk about this and phrase it and frame it, it almost creates like a, like a, oh, these people like Jesus. Those people aren't like Jesus. 
To be fair, he is holy, he is pure, he is perfect, he is God. We are not. We have all had night times, we have all had spring breaks, we've all had business trips, we've all had that time, that period, that season, that year, that decade, that whatever it was. Like We all have had those seasons. And when we look and we think Jesus and people who are like Jesus, what we really mean is people who identify as more religious people. People who have more of the moral kind of upstanding and uprightness, more of the moral framework. Those are the people but then the people who know that, like, internally, man, I am nothing like Jesus. Those are the people that were drawn to him. And it's this weird thing that they're, they're magnetized to him, and he spent time with him. And the people who identified as religious, not only was there not the same draw to him, there was, an, in fact, an aversion to him. And he was the most critical of them. We thought, man, there is something Wrong. There is something different that we should be doing or shouldn't be doing when it comes to God and church. And so we would just jump in and dive in and start reading and reading and reading. And one of the, the verses that we're going to read today, or one of the stories that we're going to read today, was, was critical for us and pivotal for us in how we understand our dynamic. We're going to drop into a conversation um, Luke records. Luke uh, is one of the four people who wrote a gospel life, uh, or a story of Jesus' life. There's actually more that wrote about it, but four of the ones that we have in our Bible. Um, Matthew wrote one, Mark wrote one, Luke wrote one, and John wrote one. Luke was a doctor and a historian who drops in, and he's really good at it because his buddy Theophilus hires him to interview eyewitnesses of Jesus, of Jesus' life. And so then Luke writes this story, and he, he captures this conversation. Jesus had just been talking and been challenging the crowd, um, and he, he was talking about the cost of discipleship. And here's one thing you need to know about Jesus. Here's what was great. Jesus, people who were nothing like him were magnetized to him, but he never compromised the truthfulness of what he was saying. And so they all show up. They're all there. The people, the tax collectors, the sinners in Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 1. It says, now the tax collectors and the sinners... We're all drawing near to him being Jesus. And all of this, because this is like, um, <clears throat> if you have, if you think about it, so tax collectors, sinners, if you've been around church, you know tax collectors are like the worst of the worst. Um, <clears throat> they had their own bracket of sinfulness. It's like, okay, um, <clears throat> there's like college students, and then there's people in the fraternity. You know, like the worst. Just kidding, if you're in a fraternity, I think you're awesome. I think Jesus loves you. You're going to love this story in a minute. But this is like, here's a different way to think about it. We'll all get this one. It's like there were sinners and there are gators, you know? You get it. And then there is Tate Rodemaker, am I right? Man, that's the, that's the first time some of y'all have ever cheered in church. That's beautiful. Jesus wants it too. Anyways, tax collector sinners, they're all drawing near to him. We're going to talk about that actually in a little bit. And the Pharisees and the scribes, so these were two people who were normally actually um, enemies of one another. They didn't really like each other, but they were kind of the religious folk. They were the morally upright. They made their life and their living and their status and their identity was all based off of how well they, they knew the laws of God and followed the right moralistic rituals of God. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. And this, this was a big deal because 
in their context, just like every other context, like you hang out with people who are similar to you. You do things with people who are similar to you. And so they're looking at it and saying, okay, we have this religious set of folks and this wildly unreligious set of folks that the tax collectors aren't just like bad people. They're not just like, okay, you're kind of a sinful person. Um, the tax collectors, how they would become a tax collector is there would be a way that they would basically put a bid out to win the job as tax collector. And the person who would win the bid would be the person who would promise on contract to Rome that I will get you the most taxable revenue. And the tax collectors were able to make their own wealth on however much they were able to charge above that contract. And so he's eating with a bunch of people who everyone hated. Here's basically what this means. When we think about like a bad person, we think, oh, somebody who did something morally kind of wrong. His job, his job by definition, was to use you to make me rich. So you think of any type of a group of people that intentionally oppresses other people in order to make themselves wealthy. He was hated. They were ostracized. They were pushed out, cast out. They weren't even allowed in the temple to worship. And you have the Son of God, God himself, in bodily form. And he is not just like ministering to as he's passing on the streets. No, he's in their house having conversations, having dinner, having coffee, spending time with. And so the religious leaders see that. And they say, are you kidding me? This man receives sinners and even worse. Man, he eats with them. He's friends with them. He has fellowship with them. And if you've ever thought, if you've ever thought at some point, it seems like I like Jesus, but I have a difficult time with the people who call themselves Jesus followers. It's a good thing that you're here today because the parable that Jesus is about to say is massive for you. And if you're in here and you're a Jesus follower, it's also going to be massive for you. Launches into this first story basically says the kingdom of God is like, is like this person who had you know, 99 sheep and one got lost, and so he was willing to, to leave what's you know, found and what's secure to find that which is lost. So when he found them, carried them back, and as he got back, they had this big party, this big celebration. Because you always leave what's secure to find what's lost. You always leave what's secure to find what's lost. So the second one, it's like you know, there's this lady, and she had this um, set of coins, and it was probably, uh, and, you know, as a part of the wedding proposal. She lost one of the ten, which has had a high level of value and a high level of worth, and she was willing to find move everything around, clean her entire house, sweep out everything to try to find this one coin. And when she found it, they had this massive, big celebration, which all makes sense functionally, right? Like, we never think, okay, I'm going to forget about what's lost because I have what's found. Um, you guys know this. I have ADHD. And I'm not saying that because the sermon's getting off track. I'm starting saying that because I regularly lose my keys. Like, if there was someone who was, if they like, who at DCC is the most gifted at losing things? I'm competitive. That's all I'm saying. Like, I don't know each and every one of you, but I will compete with that to the point where, like, I have, you know, one of those air tags on my keychain. It's God's gift to our current context because I lose those things all the time. And I tell you, I've never once not been able to find my keys and talk to Lindsay and been like, yo, have you seen my keys? Which she is like a, a, a wizard of a GPS and knowing where everything is. She's like, yes, it's under the blue chair. I saw it there two days ago. I'm like, first off, I didn't realize I hadn't driven in two days. Second off, how in God's green earth did you know that, right? You know what she's never said? It's fine. You still have your car. 
It's like, oh man, I can't find my kids. Where are my kids? Where are my kids? It's okay. You already have another kid. Then they're home. They're safe. They're found. Now, I think that, that, that feels intuitive. But I think those two stories are actually a setup. Because first you have to get them to agree with the premise. That there's a preoccupation with what's lost, not necessarily just what's found. And those two aren't always in contrast with one another. That does take a place of mental preoccupation. So he tells this last story where we're going to jump in. And let me just say as we do, it's a story that we've probably all heard before, and it is so wildly mistitled. It's called the story of the prodigal son or the parable of the prodigal son. It should absolutely be called the parable of the two sons because it's actually more about the second son than the first. And he said, this would be in Jesus, there's a man, he had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, um, in their context, in their culture, this was wildly, you, you didn't do this because of a number of different reasons. Number one is the younger son, the older son had a lot more family obligations, so they got two-thirds of the inheritance, while the younger son would have gotten one-third of the inheritance. Um, number two, to say, Father, sell your stuff, give it to me, was in essence saying, Father, relationally, we're done. We're dead. We're over. And not only was it saying no to the father, it actually brought shame to the father. Because think about this. In order to do this, he had to sell a third of his land. He had to sell a third of his property. And for them, there was a lot of honor that was brought about by, one, how much you had, and, two, the dishonor that everybody in town would have known that he sold that third. So not only did he wreck the relationship, he actually wrecked the reputation of his family. And so he goes off. Not many days later. The younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. We're going to hear about what that is. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went off and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And when he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. This is when he's starting to kind of come to the realization. And we've, many of us have been down this. This is our story. In fact, for some of us, to be clear, we're kind of in that boat right now. And we had some thoughts. We had some plans. We had some intentions. They were going for a little while. They were feeling okay for a little while. And then they just kind of fell off. This is what's interesting. I love what it says next, verse 17, this very first phrase. But when he came to himself, but when he came, let me, let me tell you why that's powerful. Because a lot of times in our current context, how we'll say that first type, that when they're going off and they're just going crazy and they're going all that kind of stuff, we'll just say, oh, don't get in the way of that. They're just living their truth. Well, sometimes living our truth creates a lot of hurt, a lot of shame, and a lot of difficulties that we face later down the road. That we've lived our truth for a while, and the problem is we found out our truth hurts. Because all of a sudden, it's like he's like living for this moment, living for this moment, living for this moment, living for this moment. Some hard times came along, and all of a sudden, he wakes up one day, and he realizes, this isn't even me. I mean, some of that, that's where we enter the story. Because we look at that and think, yeah, I've had that, I've had that, I've had that, I've had that. And then you wake up one morning or then you go to bed one night and you just, you just can't go to bed with yourself because inside you feel hollow and inside you're asking yourself the question, man, what am I even doing? 
So he comes to the realization, this isn't even me. I love my, my friend Chris Adam, who we, all, we talk about all my sermons together, and, and he helps me to kind of plan, and I'm a verbal processor. And so he comes in, and he's studied some stuff, and we talk about some stuff and have some conversations, usually kind of weeks in advance. And he um, um, is, has uh, you know, had a history of, of alcoholism previously, went through Teen Challenges, an amazing guy, amazing testimony. He's going to do some amazing things for Jesus. And one of the things that he talks about is in his addiction, it wasn't necessarily that he, that he the way he felt when he was at his high but it's how much he couldn't stand himself when he was at his low that made him want to do that again. Because he would be willing to do whatever to get out of that discomfort. And we've tried to self-medicate and we've tried to, to ignore and pretend like it's not there. And then you come to yourself. And the realization that we have is the realization that he has and the feeling. Read this with me. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. In other words, man, it, it, it did used to be better before all of this. He says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, in other words, I know I just can't go back to my dad because I have, I mean, I have just really, really burned that bridge. Like, not only relationally, not only financially, but just reputationally, like, this is not going to go well. And so I can't just go back to my pops and say, pops, I'm home, because I've punted on that a long time ago. No, I need to go home, and I need to have a script for my dad. I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, so treat me as one of your hired servants. This is kind of his plan. There's a difference between like a servant and a hired servant. And a hired servant is usually someone who lives off-site who's just working for. And so his kind of concept was, I'm just going to go back. I'm not even going to ask to be special or preferential treatment. I'm just saying, can I work for you and perhaps over time pay you back for what I've done? Typically how this would go, by the way, is the son would go back. As he went back towards the house, the father would probably have him stay outside of the property line for two or three days, sometimes a week or more at a time. After some time, the father would let him in. He would come. He would plead his case. He would grovel at his feet, and he would apologize. That was normal for their culture. So I think everybody who's listening to this story, they're kind of leaning in at this point, like, oh, I know where this is going, and he's going to come back, and the dad's going to be like, mm-hmm. That's what sin will do. Got him. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. And I love how it says that because that, that concept that they, it says he ran and embraced him and kissed him. This is like, um, this is like if you've ever seen with like, you know, you have little kids and like they just like come and give you a hug and you're just like kissing them on the cheek a bunch. And you're just like, like you like love those little jokers, right? Like, so his father, it, when he's still a long way off, and we don't know if his father's just like sitting there just like waiting on the front porch, just like looking like, is he coming back yet? Is he coming back yet? We don't know if he's inside somewhere and he sees him out the window. Shoot, I don't think they had windows, right? Like, like he's just like, 
a long way off, his father sees him, and he does what men in their culture didn't do, which was to run. Which I'm like, yo, we can bring that back, right? Anyways, gets up his, like, little, like, robe, you know, all this stuff, like, like, like jacks it up, right? He just starts running. You can imagine, like, pop. So they probably haven't seen him run. They're like, Dad, I didn't know you could still run. Second off, oh, that's what your legs look like, right? So he just, like, he's taking off running. He sees his son. He grabs him. He embraces him. He starts kissing him a bunch. And it's funny because the son, like, is experiencing this. But here's what's interesting is even though he's being embraced, the son feels this internal sense that he still, I think, feels a level of guilt and a level of shame because what's natural to do is for him to just grab his dad to hug him and maybe start to cry. But he says, no, 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 Dad. I feel the weight of what I've done. And the son said to him, now this is why he's being kissed, why he's being hugged, why he's being embraced. He's like, Dad, I've got a speech. I've been working on this. I've been practicing, maybe rehearsing it over and over. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He didn't even get to the point where like, Pops, can I work for you? He just says, Dad, I'm here. I'm not worthy to even be called your son. Listen to the father's response. But the father said to his servants, it's like he didn't even address, acknowledge that he just said something. He said, yeah, 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 whatever, Junior. Let me, let me talk to my servants for a second. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Now that was massive because they had been fattening probably a calf for a while and you normally didn't eat meat in this context on a daily basis except for a big celebration. So he's like, this is a massive deal. Let us eat and celebrate for this son was dead. Pops, pops, pops. I'm not worthy to be called son. Pops, you know, I mean, come on. I took all of that. I went all that far away. You've been living in the shame. You've been living with a reputation. You, I, have, I have caused this, Dad. He said, no, no, no. This son of mine, am I still your son? You never stopped. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. You wonder what that's good news? Because there's, and I say this with, with as much genuineness and empathy as I can. Like there's some of us in this room right now who honestly, you feel that in a way that right now even coming to this place was so difficult. Because you carried in here the guilt and the shame of the things that you've done. And perhaps the way that church and God has been presented to you by people who do church has been one that we expect you to come in and grovel, and cry, and perhaps work your way up. You maybe came in and you had a plan, and okay, enough. if I talk to God, I'm gonna have to tell him I'm sorry. If I talk to God, I'm gonna have to tell him all these things. If I talk to God, I know I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna, I mean, I, I'm gonna have to start again, and I know I need to serve some, and you know, I need to stop doing some stuff. Here's, here's, here's the beautiful thing if you walked in today with guilt and celebration, my hope is that you walked out today celebrating because you know that your father loves you. He cares about you. He embraces you. And when you were a long way off, he started running. I think many of us can identify as the prodigal at some point. But my experience has also been, the longer that you're a Christian, 
the more that we begin to identify as the second brother. Now, this older son, verse 25, was in the field. As he came and he drawn near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he, being the servant, said to him, the brother, he says, your brother has come home. Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. Now, there's two different reactions as a brother you can have to this. And those of you who have you know, siblings, you, you know this, and you get this. Like, at sometimes you're like, that's awesome. Sometimes you're like, I can't wait to punch that joker in the throat, right? That was his reaction. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father. He says, Father, which also, by the way, in their culture, in their context, like fathers did not go back out and plead with his son to come back in. But his father sees this. His father experiences. He knows his son's angry, so he goes out and tries to start talking to his son. This is his son's response back. He answered his father, Look, look, pops, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. God, Dad, I did all the things that you asked me to. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. He's like, Dad, you are, you are with this dude. I mean, come on. Like, you're the, the fattened calf for him. Like, Pops, haven't you seen this entire time? I've been doing stuff. I've been going to Bible study. I've been spending time. I've been serving. I did Project Tallahassee. I mean, God, did, didn't you see that I was in the thing, and I did the thing, and I intended the thing, and I served at the thing, and in fact, I led the thing. God, haven't you seen all of the obedience that I've done? And yet here's this person who just wanders in. You're the fat calf, like, like, Dad, can I get a chicken or something? And it's funny, because I think categorically we can identify with the prodigal, but I think the more that we identify and realize that we have older brother tendencies, the better off we'll be and the quicker we'll start to resemble Jesus. It's easy to vilify the older brother. Let me ask a question, because this is essentially what it is. Essentially, the older brother mentality. Let me read this verse, actually. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property, Pops, I don't even know if you know about this yet. The son of yours who's devoured your property with, Dad, Dad, he's been with prostitutes. When he comes home, you killed the fattened calf, for him? What I find to be interesting is, again, the gravitational pull of the longer you've been in a religious space, the more we start to, try to, start to unintentionally, I think, embody this. In fact, churches as a whole, um, the pull towards this is a pull that we create spaces and places for the older brother. For the person who has been here the whole time, for the person who has been obedient the entire time, for the person who's done what the Father has asked the entire time. I mean, even just church, functionally, how we work, you know, a lot of times it's easy to create places and spaces that are built for, play, for people who already know where to park, already know where the bathrooms are, already know where to go to get coffee, already, already know where to get connected, already know to where to go for prayer. We create places and spaces that say, okay, join a group once you're already saved. We as churches unintentionally create organizations and systems for the people who are already there. But the problem is, is Jesus came to seek and save those that are lost. 
And we don't really mean to get this mentality, I don't think. At least hopefully not. But it happens. Let me give you some versions of how this can happen personally. For many of us, if we found a way that still worships God through music, but music stylistically it changed, um, a lot of us would be very disgruntled after a little bit of time at church here. Just would. We were joking and said, man, it would be awesome if we had, um, you know, grew to the point to where, like, there was an incorporation of, 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 of really gospel-centered music, or, or not gospel, it's all gospel-centered, but, you know, like, gospel in terms of its style. And some of you guys think, like, man, that'd be awesome if we did. Yeah, that'd be cool for about four months until you missed Hillsong. And you'd be like, man, I just missed that time. And I would raise my hands, and I'd feel the AC, and it was the Holy Spirit, and I'd get goosebumps, you know. It was just me and Jesus. It was so sweet. Jesus is still available, by the way, all the time. Um, it, it sounds good. Let's get a little bit more deep than that. Um, let's say you're single, and you really want to find somebody. But there's an absolute gift in singleness. Let's say you want to find somebody, and somebody who hasn't been following for Jesus that long, they, 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 they just recently got saved, like a couple weeks ago got saved, and all of a sudden they're starting to grow in their knowledge of Jesus, grow in their sanctification, and all of a sudden they find somebody, and you're thinking, God, what about me? Like, God, I have been here the entire time, and I feel like you've forgotten about me. With the person who's like, man, you, you, you deeply want to find meaningful career employment and somebody else who just recently has turned back to God, and you don't even know if they're saved or not at this point. I mean, they just turned back and you, the church embraced them, and you're thinking, man, like, like I'm still looking for a job, and it seems like they walked in and they found a job, not necessarily at the church, but just in general, meaningful career employment. Like, like God, why can't I have that? And here's what that basically says. As in, in, number one, know that that response is very natural. But also know that our natural self is sinful. So that doesn't make it okay, but it does make it normal. And essentially what that says is, God, you are not a gift enough. You owe me. I've been doing this, so you should do this for me. So Jesus kind of pulls back to this story. And he, the Father, said to him, the Son, Son, you were always with me. You were always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he's found. You see, here's, let me tell you one thing that's interesting and one thing that's confounding. The interesting part is that the older brother's mentality was actually the younger brother's mentality at first, too. Here's what the older brother was saying, and here's what the younger brother was saying. The older brother was saying, Pops, look at how I've performed. Look at how I've performed. I have performed well for you. I should be rewarded by you. The younger son, who was the prodigal, who ran off, is saying, I can't go back because I've performed so poorly. But it's like God's sitting there saying, Here's the problem. Y'all think it's about performance. I'm happy that my kids are proximal, not performing. 
This was never about my performance. That yes, I want you to live for me. Yes, I want you to do what I say. But not because you think that if you work for me hard enough, long enough, I will be indebted to you and I should do something for you. I want you to do this because of the fact that you love me. The fact that you know I love you. The fact that you know that I would run to you, wrong for you, embrace you when you're a long way off. And I care for you. And so I want you to know this is not about performance. This is about proximity. That my lost kid is now found. And here was the thing that's, that's actually really, really riveting about this story that seldom talked about is Jesus just ends it there. He does not create a conclusion as to what happens to this older son. You want to know why? Again, context. Chapter uh, 15, verse 1. The tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, this man receives sinners and eats with them. In other words, they are the older brothers. This story is not finished because their story was not finished. And here is what I'm telling you. I don't know your category of God, But whatever your category of God, this rubs against it, almost intuitively. Here's what this story says. The lover of prostitutes is saved, and the morally upright is lost. How does that fit with your religion? How does that fit with your version of Jesus? The lover of prostitutes was saved, and the morally upright is still in the field trying to figure out what he wants to do with that. Still figuring out if he can go inside and even be with the Father because of it. As I was reading this, I was thinking, man, I feel like the challenge in this for us is even just in chapter 1, or chapter 15, verse 1, that the tax collectors and the sinners, they were drawing near to him. I think the beginning of the the older brother mentality begins with making ourselves insular to people who don't know Jesus. I mean, Jesus had his disciples, yeah, but then people who are nothing like him, again, the most irreligious people. We're drawn to him. The blessing of Christian community is that it's phenomenal and it's transformative. The difficult tension to manage is the fact that the more that you hang out with Christians, the more that you only know Christians. If I was to say, who are the last 15 people that you had dinner with and spent time with personally? Would that just be a category of all Christians? If you were to go through your phone and your contacts, is that just a category of Christians? Because again, Jesus didn't just meet them passing by in class and at work. No, he spent time and he ate. And here's what I see. We as a group of people, as a church, this is what Jesus was all about. God came to the world knowing that we had all been alienated from him. God came to the world knowing that we had all sinned and gone astray. God came to the world knowing that he was holy and knowing that there had to be some type of a payment to be made for us. And when he died for us, he forgave. He forgave the sin that we couldn't pay. He paid for the relational reconciliation that needed to happen as well as the debt that had to, have, had to be paid. That when we look at this, we look at the Father and we see The purpose of Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to seek and save those that are lost. And there's something inside of me, I'm going to be really honest right now, there's something inside of me that almost like pushes back against this, because I know that I'm the one that's up in front, that's on a microphone, and it can come across as like, okay, so we need to do this so our church grows. Statistically, we're already big. That's not a thing. Here's what you need to know. This is the preoccupation of Jesus. This is the entire reason he came to planet Earth. It was to die. And many of us push the mission away. And we have, we push the mission of God away oftentimes for a level of personal holiness. So let me just 
ask you, if you were to acknowledge right now, are you, if you've been following Jesus, are you an older brother? Because you know how this story should have ended? You know what I want our story to be as individuals? Is that we see the celebration that's happening. We see the band that's happening. We hear the fattened calf has, has been slaughtered and is starting to, to cook. And so we bring someone like, hey, what's going on over there? There's a lot of commotion. There's a lot of activity. And he says, oh, dude, you didn't know? Your brother was lost, and now he's found. He was dead. He's alive. He's home. You know what I hope our response is? What? Are you kidding? Like, hold on, my brother? Like, that dude? Like, yeah, he's a rascal. That, that, I mean, man, but, but are you kidding me? Like, he is home. He is home. Oh, my gosh, I can't wait to see him. I am so glad that he is here. Oh, man, I've been thinking about him, and I have been praying for him. And, oh, man, I know that he's got some stories. I know he's got some scars. I know he's got some shame that he's going to need to work through, and he's going to need to get rid of and realize that we're all sinful. We're all people. But, man, I am so glad that my brother is home. And I don't need to make him wait at the gate. I don't need to make sure he's serious. Like, I can't believe that my brother is home. He is found and I am overjoyed. That's the kind of church we should be. And many of you embody that. And I am so thankful for you. I think the future of who God's called us to be is simply this. To seek and save those that are lost and to embrace the posture of the loving father, not the older son. And for any of, any of you who are in here, who your story right now is I'm a prodigal. And man, I am coming to myself and realizing this is not me and this is not what I thought it would be. Let me tell you, there's about to be a celebration because you are the exact reason. I am the exact reason. We are the exact reason. That when Jesus, his last night on earth, gathered his disciples together and said, I'm about to do something brand new. My blood is about to be shed and my body is about to be broken for you and for everyone who would take part in this. So we thought, man, the best way to close our service together is just simply that. And here's my hope. Is that if you're in here and you're a Jesus follower, as we take communion together, I hope and I pray that just, just the presence of the love of God, the presence of the love of God, that his body was broken and his blood was shed so that we could be reconciled to him, it would just move us in such a way that we can't help but to love and serve and engage with the world around us. And if you're here and you're, man, you've got things and you've got a story. And, and I love hearing people who, once they've come to faith, talk about their first time when they walked in. They thought stuff like, man, I thought when I was walked in, maybe like a lightning bolt was going to strike or I was going to pop on fire or something was going to happen. And little did you know, your father who loves you so much is just ready to celebrate. And he endured the cross so that he can embrace each and every one of us. I do not know your story. And I do not know your shame. And I do not know your guilt. But I know a God who his death and payment and reconciliation is stronger than the worst mistake you could ever make. Let's pray together.
God, I ask that you would make us in a group of people who deeply love you, who serve you, and who are preoccupied with reaching people for you. God, a God who so loves us, you died for us. A God who so loves us, you did not stand out in eternity. You didn't stand out in heaven. You came down to planet Earth. You died for us, and you taught in such a way that it just turned the whole world upside down. I mean, what kind of a God would say the lover of the prostitute is saved and the morally upright is lost unless we come to the realization that the morally upright and the lover of the prostitute are actually the same thing? Because compared to your holiness, God, we are all sinners, have all fallen short. But it's for those of us who realize that we need saving that can confess you as our Savior. Would you help us? Give us the wisdom to not just be insular, not just be connected to ourselves, but to reach, to embrace, to befriend. And God, I pray people would come to know you. That on the last night, God, you got your closest followers together and said this sacrifice is going to be made for the forgiveness of of sins. God, as we take communion together as a church family, would you give us the awareness that this sacrifice that we are participating in was done for us and done for the entire world. I pray that that changes us, changes our hearts, and that when people think about us, they think, man, that's a group of people who hang out with some really unreligious folks. But gosh, that looks like Jesus. God, give us the wisdom to know what to do and the courage to do it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.